0: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris and this is Postmortem. It's time for a little bit of celebration. Everyone within and without the film industry has been doing a lot of hand-wringing about the state of theatrical distribution and movies in general, including me. The trend has been for the studios and exhibitors to place all their bets on big budget comic book movies and horror franchises, pretty much eliminating any screen space that might've otherwise provided room for original movies with a unique personal cinematic point of view. We've been decrying the death of the theatrical movie going experience, the studios throwing up their hands and saying, the people want Marvel movies and sequels, and by God, that's what we're going to give them. The trend has definitely moved away from the standalone story to the pre-masticated product. But look what's happened. As I'm recording this, the local AMC is playing everything everywhere all at once. The Northman, the unbearable weight of massive talent, Hatchling, Duel, and X. Now, not everyone's going to love all of them, but each is a singular film from a filmmaker with a vision. And they're out there right now playing on the big screen. That's exciting. Maybe it's a quirk, maybe it's the coincidence of timing, but after being guilty of fearing the end of the movie going experience, I'm excited. We have a job to do though. If we want to keep the independent movie going theatrical experience alive it's our job to go see these unique movies on the big screen where God intended. The paying audience didn't go out to see last night in Soho antlers and nightmare alley and we don't want to pay the price of their theatrical failure go to the movies and support independent visions. Speaking of independent, our guest is an award-winning author, screenwriter, actor, and director. John Sales has made a career without compromise in a world that doesn't often encourage such artistic liberty. We'll talk about his wide range of work in letters and film after this. So, John, thank you so much for joining us here. Sure. It's really fun to have you. So both of your parents were educators. Is that where your interest in literature and the like began?
1: You know, neither of them. My father taught math and science and my mother was a a grade school teacher. I kind of, I was raised Catholic and I think kind of honestly, the first storytelling that I really kind of saw, oh, there's a pattern here, were the gospels during the Catholic mass. Um, you know, every Easter, you get the Easter story, you know, every Christmas you get the Christmas story. And before I knew what a simile or a metaphor was, I said, oh, there's that thing again, where this is like that, um, you know, because the, the parables are told for a reason. Um, so I, I think I got interested in stories that, and then we used to go to the driving. And we had a, it was a black and white TV set, but we had a TV set. And so I started, you know, I certainly um, saw more television movies than I read stories or books, but I did read stories or books fairly early at the same time, including things that were way over my head that I understood as much as I understood. And if the story was good, it didn't matter that I wasn't getting a lot of it.
0: Well, you also got a BA in, in psychology. Um, tell me about that and how that led you perhaps into writing stories, a fiction of your own.
1: You know, I, I, I was one of those, uh, well, I don't want to go back to working in hospitals and factories. I don't want to go to Vietnam. So mm. I guess college is a good option. And <laughs> um, it, at the college I went to, um, there was a science requirement. And I had kind of hit the wall with science while I was in high school. And so I said, oh, if you're a psych major, your science can be animal behavior. And I, I love nature movies. And so um, I took a lot of animal behavior courses and did some experiments on some poor chickens and things like that. Oh dear. Um, and I was interested in people. Um, so, so I psychology kind of fit. I wasn't a great student. I, I got, I was a C. C student, which is what you needed to do to stay in school and not just enough to
0: keep out of the draft, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And so, you know, if I took a writing course and got an A in it, I could take another course and get a D in it, and
0: it would (laughs) average out nicely. (laughs) Yeah, I I
1: definitely handicapped my college experience, Uh, but I did get to read a lot of novels, which I, even though I didn't take English classes or literature classes, I would go to the library. I know oh, I've heard of this guy. I've heard of this guy. And I started at A. And by the time I graduated, I had gotten to M or N. Uh, so I, there's some still some big gaps in my knowledge. And um, they showed a lot of movies on campus. And so I, I saw a lot of movies. Uh, there was a guy there who taught, uh, he was a Henry James scholar, and I never took any of those courses, but he, he was really into movies named um, Charles Thomas Samuels, who wrote a good book called Encountering Directors, uh, interview book with, with some great directors. And he, in uh, January, they had a winter study program, and I took that a couple of times. So in, in one month, we saw all of Ingmar Bergman's movies, including wow. the ones before he really knew what he was doing in <sighs> the movie. So you, you kind of saw him learn the trade. Um, and then another year, it was a a mixed bag of of people. And so you got to see these movies. And then the day later, he would go through them and freeze frame and you'd talk about kind of craft. You know, how how did this person do this? Wow. Which was great, you know, in, in that, you know there, there was not even a drama major at this college so there certainly wasn't a film major but to be able to kind of think about things in that kind of detail was great
0: yeah we're pretty much contemporaries. so when i went to school as well there weren't really uh many film classes uh, yeah. more than maybe film appreciation at the time but certainly not the craft of making them
1: and almost no books You know, I I remember when I went to work for Roger Corman, he gave me a film book and it was by Siegfried Krakauer or something like that. It was very (laughs) theoretical and it wasn't helpful at all.
0: Well, we're gonna jump into the Corman thing and we may as well do it now. Um, uh, You had started writing fiction. Your first book was Pride of the Bimbos, Mm -hmm. got a lot of attention. How did that, first of all, did you have a plan to move into filmmaking? Or did you plan to be an author?
1: Um, I had gone less. I had, uh, I, I, had uh, I, I, I thought it would be a great thing if I could do that. Um, and I knew that there were some uh, people who wrote their way into a directing job, John Huston being one of the most prominent of those. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe that'll be my way in. Um, I had acted in theater and directed in theater. So I'd worked with actors and I thought that, well, that, You know, unlike film school graduates, I had actually had some experience working with actors. Um, And so it was kind of something in my head. so when I had to sell my second novel, um, I was acting in a summer stock theater company and I didn't have time to go and negotiate with a, you know, a publisher or whatever. And um, a guy who played poker with a friend of mine said, oh, John Saylor, I'm, I'm a, I'm a literary agent, you know, give me his phone number. And, uh, he called me up and he had a nice deep voice. I didn't realize (laughs) that he, he looked like he was 13 years old. Um, (laughs) and he sold my second novel. and, And as a prelude to that, he said, Oh, by the way, our literary agency has a deal with, uh, a film agency on the West coast. And, um, if we sell your book, it's automatically going to be represented as a movie property by the Ziegler agency in Los Angeles. And I said, well, give me, the, give me their phone number. You know, <laughs> to, to contact Hollywood. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. Right. Um, and I called them up and they said, oh, well, send us an example of something you've written, a screenplay. And I had just read Elliot Azinoff's Eight Men Out uh, about the Black Sox scandal of 1990. I thought, well, that would make a great movie. So without owning the rights or e- even knowing how to go about trying to own the rights, I adapted it into a screenplay. I sent it out to the Ziegler agency. And it turned out that Everett Ziegler, the head of the company, had been the literary agent for that book 25 years earlier. Wow. So he calls me up straight and he says, okay, kid, you did a great job. You're never going to get to make that fucking movie. There's a curse on it. People have tried over the years, but you did a good job. Come out here and we'll see what we can do.
0: And ironically, you proved him wrong years later. 11 he years made later, it yeah. A got movie. Made. Yeah, not to interrupt the course of this story.
1: But. Yeah, and then, uh, so I came out, they assigned me an agent, uh, Maggie Field, and really only a couple months after uh, we came out, she called me up and said, well, there's a rewrite for a Roger Corman movie called Piranha, which I figured has got to be a Jaws, you know, spinoff. You want it, you got it. And what had happened is that Francis had read a couple of my short stories in the Atlantic magazine, given them to Roger. And he said, oh, we we should see if we can hire this guy. And then she found out, oh, he's already out here in Hollywood. You know, Um, so it was a nice serendipity in that way. Uh, Francis used to sit in Roger's office and, you know, like the kid in you know, in high school who's got Chaucer on the outside and amazing stories on the inside. She would have amazing stories on the outside and some you know, kind of contemporary good literature on the inside. Uh, so she was a great connection. there. She, she was kind of the all purpose assistant to Roger Corman. She was a story editor. She talked to talent. She, you know, kind of did everything that was needed. Um, that Roger didn't do. And it was a very small company. So it wasn't like there were masses of, masses of people when you had a story conference. Right. Um, and so I, I I did a very quick rewrite on that because I write fast. And the next thing I knew, they had signed Joe, signed Joe Dante, who had been an editor for them as the director. And I think we talked over the phone. Um, and I did a rewrite based on that talk, which was mostly... Do you know how little money I have to make
0: this? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and I
1: did a little, uh, um, you know, rewriting for that, and then uh, they invited me to the set to um, uh, do a cameo. But mostly because uh, in the Roger had wanted something like Jaws, where there's a big opening of something, and in the script it was opening a brand new amusement park. Right. And it was clear that the amusement park was not brand new where they were <laughs> shooting. And I had to write a few lines to, to, to explain that.
0: Right. So
1: I had a day on a set, which was really fun. Two days and that ago. was
0: your first time on a film set?
1: Yeah, yeah. First so, time on a camera.
0: We, we like to focus on the genre aspects of movies and the like, but this one is a seminal film. Not only at the time was it easily the best of the Carmen produced new, new World Pictures, but it had that sense of humor and winking intelligence that you and Joe Dante would bring into the things that you collaborated on mm-hmm. and the things you did separately. So did you have an interest in the horror genre beforehand? Yeah, I
1: had certainly um, grown up watching, I would say creature features um, yeah. more than horror movies. You know, this this is a monster movie. Yeah. Um, so I had seen all of those um, Japanese made uh, movies. The,
0: the Kaijin Jin
1: And Mothra and, and Godzilla and the attack of the mushroom people and stuff, oh. you know, dubbed uh, yeah. and sometimes with, the back of somebody's head that looked like a Japanese actor and then some American actor thrown in, you know, later on by Joseph E. Levine. And I liked those movies. And, um, and then I'd seen, a, you know, most of the classic American horror movies um, and, and had a fondness for them as well. Um, so I, I, I knew the genre fairly well and the structure of the genre fairly well. So, you know, I just realized coming into Piranha um that, that that there is this you know kind of uh template which is we the audience get to see it's shadowy and you don't really get to see the monster but you see you hear the screams
0: right, uh, right. <laughs> and then
1: the next time uh your hero and heroine see the monster but nobody will believe them Um, And then the monster comes out in public and everybody's really freaked. And then the army tries to kill the monster and fail. And then usually the hero or heroine or both figure out, well, let's try this on the monster. And it either kills the monster or sends it back in for the, to the ocean for the remake. You know, or the- Right. Um, And so I, with that, I just figured, well, Piranha live in rivers. And I've got a straight line. So they they go in here, they're heading for this, you know, summer camp or whatever it is at the end. Um, I've got to have some twists and turns in the middle. Um, So so just structurally, I really understood what I was doing and I had a fondness for the genre. And also for the genre, occasionally there was some humor in the genre, not always on purpose. Um, (laughs) And then the perfect you know partner for that is joe dante who understands the tone of horror movies well enough I, I think you know the the humor in piranha is closer to the humor in some of the hammer horror movies the remakes of some of the classics that they did which always had a little bit of a tongue in, tongue-in-cheek right that they can be funny and scary at the same time if you don't go campy
0: well, it seems to be a perfect marriage with you and Joe Dante because you both have this affection for the horror movies of your youth, the monster movies of your mm-hmm. youth, and a knowledge of it, but also a pretty wonderfully dry sense of humor that, that seems a perfect match there uh, to, to be repeated again on The Howling.
1: Yeah, I think, I think one thing that I brought to it is that um, b- because of their low budgets and because of the time that they were made, uh, most horror movies don't bring in the media. And I, right. I just felt like, okay, by now, um, people who are in a horror movie have seen horror movies. And, <laughs> yes. and so it's going to be a little more self-conscious and they're, they're, they're going to be a little less likely to do the stupid things that people did in the earlier ones, uh, but also, how are you going to keep the media out of this? You know, um, they're so desperate for any kind of story that if a giant alligator shows up, you know, it would be hard to get near the alligator because there'd be so many people with cameras and microphones around it, um, <laughs> trying to exploit it and get you know juice up their ratings. Um, so, so I brought some of that to it, and then. Um, Joe, besides really knowing, I think, you know, he got a lot of training making, you know, editing Corman films on how do you build a pounce? How do you build, you know, suspense and surprise and those kind of things. Um, he, He really understood that kind of tone that you can hit and kind of keep. So it's still, you're still worried that people are gonna get eaten. Right. Um, even if it's some of it's been funny along the way, you, you have to take the monster st- seriously, even if you don't take the whole thing solemnly.
0: There's also a deflection that humor provides as well. Joe seems to like to m- make fun of something before the audience does and yeah. then have it twist around like Alfred Hitchcock would set you up with a laugh and end with strangling you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that, for instance, um, there's not much overt humor in Wes Craven movies. Right. Um, what Wes did better than anybody is, okay, it's gonna jump on us now. Uh, oh, no, it didn't. It's gonna jump on us now. No, it didn't. And, and it jumps <laughs> on you just when you jump. I mean, right. he, could, he could have you walk through a room where something was dangerous and you could never quite know when it was gonna pounce. And he'd, he'd get you every time. He was so good at that. Um, but that tone, you know, to be able to mix that tone the way that Joe did in the howling yeah. with the funnier stuff, um, that's a real talent.
0: Well, oh, and then going, it's staying with the Roger Corman School. Along comes Battle Beyond the Stars, which is something quite different. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. first Piranha was the Jaws ripoff then Battle Beyond the Stars was a Star Wars ripoff. Tell me about the rules that were laid down because it was unusual in the Corman camp because there were no bare breasts in the first 10 minutes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, what Roger did and, you know, he wasn't he he, I was lucky in that he was still a signatory to the Writers Guild. Oh, so he had to pay me a full $10,000 for these scripts. Whoa, big! And um, I think he also didn't want to pay whatever it was, $2,000 for a, a story or a treatment. So he had, I think she was working as a PA in the office or something. He said, OK, watch Magnificent Seven, watch The Seven Samurai and, and write me a treatment for a uh, uh, outer space version of that. And so she runs something that was pretty good. And then Roger took that to me and said, okay, I want you to make this into a screenplay. And um, you know, you've seen those movies and, and, and it should have that kind of bunch of characters and they each have their own skills and they're gonna save some planet or some people from destruction from the bad guys. But you can go wild with a science fiction. And I know that I can hire a couple young kids who worked on Star Wars. Right. And so don't be shy with your special effects, you know, we'll, we'll do what we can, but I've got some guys who, who, who know their stuff. Um, and he had just bought the lumber outlet in Venice. Oh yeah. Um, so, so as I was sending in drafts and it wasn't that many drafts, it was maybe three drafts altogether. Um, they would say things like, eh, yeah, I know you're writing in camera direction now, but, but panning." If we pan too much, we see lumber, literally. We, we <laughs> yes. have not gotten all the lumber out of this place. And the sets really can't be that big.
0: Yeah, this was like a Home Depot lumberyard yeah. thing. And, yeah. uh, and Roger bought it and turned it into the New World Studios. And I don't
1: quite understand why. But um, at some point they said, well, when the bad guy, the Malmori you know, fighters show up, have them be in groups of three. Right. For some reason, the photographic process they were doing, three was the perfect number for them. So I always <laughs> would say a trio of, you know, <laughs> samurai fliter, fighters chase them, you know, around the Death Star or whatever. Um, and what I realized is that what what kind of held the, the, the source movies together, The Magnificent Seven and The Seven Samurai, um, some of it was this idea of, this is our last go round. You know, we're, we're, we're gonna become museum pieces and we have these skills and there's really not much of a market. So we're taking dimes instead of dollars now from these. And, and you know what, we're kind of doing it for the hell of it. You know, cause this is what we do. Um, and there was kind of a class thing in Seven Samurai. Um, and I figured, so what's gonna, outer space doesn't necessarily have those rules what can I do? And I decided that it would be a meditation on death and philosophies of death. And so you have, you know, the, the sexiest character, you know, says, you know, our, our creed is to live fast, die young and have a beautiful ending, you know. Right. And then there's the, the, the characters who are facets of a group, like, a, like an ant colony and they're all over the, the universe, and everything that they see, the whole, the whole sees. So they're just having adventures all over the place, but they can't stand pain. So if they're about to be tortured or something, they just end themselves. They're just a couple cells, like dandruff. Right, you know? right. <laughs> And so they have a very, very, very long view of life and death. And then the bad guy wants to be immortals, but he's doing it by replacing himself piece by piece. Um, Right. You know, there's, there's a head in a box. Originally it was going to be a brain in the box that had a speaker to it. You know, (laughs) another guy who he he can't, he's not ambulatory anymore, but he's still alive, you know? So each of the characters has this different, you know, relationship with, with death. And that gave me a kind of, Thematic glue for what I wrote, and then when it came out, you know, there were there were creatures that I wrote one way that came out another way because of usually expense, right? Uh, but they actually right. didn't change the, the 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 writing very much. Um, and then uh, James Cameron worked on it. You know, he kind of got pushed up to being semi-production designer, art director. Uh, James Horner's first big score was for that. Yeah, Roger recycled for several movies. <laughs> yes,
0: as but it's a beautiful up, or like, orchestral uh, score. Yeah,
1: so it was really a fun movie once once they made it, and then there were things like um, getting Robert Vaughn, who'd been in the Magnificent Seven, to to right. reprise that character, basically, and you know George Pappard, who. in in real life would be happy to have a gin and tonic at hand at all (laughs) times, brought that business into the story. So, you know, they they were very creative with it. Uh, Jimmy Murakami, I never met. He was an animator before he did this feature and I only talked to him on the phone once. And then I talked to somebody in the production department one other time. So I never visited the set. Um, But he had this, you know, not big budget to do, Really, a pretty ambitious movie.
0: Very, um, He yeah. Really,
1: couldn't move the camera very much in his exteriors because the sets couldn't be very elaborate. So I thought they, w- with what they were given, they they did a really terrific job of it.
0: Well, for the budgetary level that New World worked on, um, the the quality was pretty amazing because he did give opportunities to really talented new young filmmakers. Yeah special effects creators, all of these people. And they, they gave so much more than they were paid for, including- yes, yourself. And,
1: and, and Roger mostly stayed out of their way. Um, yeah. As long as you stayed on time and on budget, um, and it was always good to be the B picture. So if Roger was working on Avalanche and you were working on something else, <laughs> you know, he was busy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but he didn't micromanage. You know, He really said, here's your job. Here's the script, don't, don't you know, stray too far from it. Here's your budget, here's your time, make a good picture. Uh, I'm not gonna fault, you know, make it as good as you can, and I'm never gonna blame you for making it better as long as it doesn't cost anymore. <laughs>
0: Well, it's interesting because you obviously had visions of becoming a director yourself. Mm-hmm. You put the money that you made from writing these movies into directing your own first mm-hmm. feature, completely self-independently funded. And this was the return of the Secaucus 7, which The Big Chill certainly took a lot of uh, uh, mm-hmm. inspiration certainly from. the
1: format, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Roger always claimed that his films were braced with a, a, a social consciousness, a liberal social consciousness. And that's pretty much a hallmark of your work as well. It's very political, it's very social, it, it's very involved whether it's gender politics or, or Vietnam or, or yeah. whatever. Um, tell me about the importance of that to you in your storytelling in the, in the films that you have control over.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you know, everybody has their vision of the world and, and, and mine isn't especially um, dogmatic as far as this party or this you know, ism, uh, but it is a, it's, it's a viewpoint of the world of what you think people are and what they're capable of. Um, in the case of Corman movies, one of the things that Roger I think was very good at is he realized most of my audience are young people and they love rebels. And they love people who, you know, stir up the status quo and fight against the, the man, you know, against the, the um, you know, the official story. Um, when in Sequoia 7, it was really kind of about um, what happens uh, when you're a rebel and the world doesn't turn out the way that you want it to and you're getting a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and that that seemed like an interesting thing for me and my particular group of friends that I, I was hanging out with when I was writing those pictures and, and, and Mates Sequaka Caucus 7 uh, were people who uh, they weren't SDS people. They were in Vista and mm-hmm. Vista was kind of the domestic Peace Corps. So there was something a little less um, abstract and ideological about their, their activism and much more going into a neighborhood and saying, okay, what's the problem here? What can we do? You know, may, may, you know like in the Peace Corps area. I know kids who go on the Peace Corps and what they did was they built a public toilet or a well Right. You know, and which isn't particularly ideological, but it's something that people needed, you know. Right. right. And very often it might be, a, you know, English as a second language program that they set up or even, a, you know, a, a night basketball program or something. But Vista was very practical at the same time that it was progressive. Um, and what I noticed is that um, my male friends were almost all doing, making less money than their father's. Yeah, and purposely taking a job where they knew that was probably the future. They were never going to make as much as their dad did, um, and that the the women uh, were actually more likely to stay in a career longer than their mothers had. Hmm. A lot of them had working mothers. By that certain point, when their mothers had kids, um, they they became full time moms. Uh, these were women who were not having kids at 22. They were more likely to have them at 35. Right. Um, and so those those kind of trends, I thought, would be interesting to, to get into a very tightly written movie. And Secaucus so 7 is, is the only movie that I've ever written with where I had the budget and it worked backwards from the budget, <laughs> which was kind of Corman in a way, you know, is, is what what can we do? Uh, right.
0: How much do think I have? Of
1: those yeah. uh, Monty Hellman Hel- Westerns. Yeah. Well, we're not going to have a town. You know, that that costs its money to rent a town. So let's just start the chase out in the boondocks. And the boondocks are free.
0: Well, I, I love that it's about a group of activists who get together years later. And some of them have become they've lost their their drive towards social justice they've become a little bit complacent and there's this friction between these two factions of something that was very important in our wonder years yeah you know?
1: yeah
0: well they haven't quite
1: lost it you know it is called the return of the scotka seven yes they're, they're not able to, to to do it as much as they'd like to but they might be a teacher you right. know, and, and their progressive you know, instincts get into that. They're not necessarily out picketing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, people ask me about the, the difference between the, the Secaucus 7 and The Big Chill. The Big Chill is called The Big Chill for a reason. It's <laughs> yeah. definitely about people who are realizing they've lost their, their idealism or maybe never had it in the first place. It's a very, you know, different in that way movie. Yeah, um, which I, I liked quite a bit, um, but I think it's, it was also just kind of, oh, most of my friends are about to turn 30. They don't have kids yet. Most of the really good actors I know um, are about to be 30, and they're not in the Screen Actors Guild yet, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I, can, I can pay them what they got paid um, when we were acting in the summer stock theater, which is pretty close to minimum wage. <laughs> um, so I think I can make a feature film for, and this is 1978,
0: for $40,000. Wow. And you pulled it off. It got in theaters. It was extremely well-reviewed. It did well. And it didn't have to do huge box office because of the size of the movie itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, it eventually out of pocket, uh, we got an advance of $20,000 that was basically to blow it up from 16 millimeter to, to, you know, uh, to 35
0: what,
1: to 35, which showed in regular theaters and that allowed it to have a theatrical run. Um, and, uh, and it did pretty well theatrically for a small movie. And there was a circuit of art houses and off Hollywood houses, you know, for it to play in. And, and some of them it stayed for five, six, seven weeks things that never happened these days, you know, right. days that long in a theater. Right. Um, and I think it was also um, right at that time, those off Hollywood theaters, uh, did, uh, video had just arrived. And I think they were, those calendar houses were saying, oh, we can't show uh, the 400 blows these two weeks in January again. Uh, because people can now own that film. Right. you got to have something else. And so they started looking to American independent films. Stuff was coming in from Britain. Stuff was coming in from Australia, of all places. There was German cinema was pretty good. And so things were loosening up, for, which was nice for the audience, because they were getting a shot at stuff they didn't have a shot at before.
0: Well, at this time, you're... Writing books as well as writing and directing movies. Tell me about the difference in the process. I've written several books as well, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, for me, it's a totally different approach. But it still feels the same sense of creation, and and the enjoyment of the actual process is the same.
1: You, know, you, me- you use a lot of the same muscles, um, but there there are big differences. For for me, the biggest difference is that when you're writing fiction, uh, you're gone. <laughs> you want the sun to shine. The sun is shining, you know. Yeah. If you wanna do the Bay of Pigs invasion, you can describe, you know, columns and columns of Cuban soldiers rushing to the Bay of Pigs. Um, and you don't have to worry about your costume person saying, are we gonna see their feet? You know, because <laughs> right. um, you know, I was, doing this before CGI, where you actually had to have thousands of extras to show thousands of extras on the screen. Um, in a movie, you can, you can be an enlightened despot, but you can't be God. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, in, in a book, everything has to, uh, that you describe, and you can describe, you know, all kinds of very emotional stuff, but it has to go through the reader's head first. There's things in movies that go to your gut before they go through your head. Yeah. Uh, you've got the soundtrack, you've got the sound effects. There's just just there's just stuff that's just visceral. And and in a book you have to describe it in words and it may become visceral but, but it goes through the head first. Richard to, Matheson yeah.
0: once Richard Matheson once said to me uh, and I bring this up a lot is that film is external and books are internal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: um, and you know, and I, I, I write very much like you're watching a movie in that I don't do a lot of internal monologue for my characters. I write what they say, what they what they say and what they do, and you have to figure out what's going on in their head pretty much. Uh, my last three novels were in um, not only not in first person; they they were in um, uh, uh, present tense,
0: uh-huh.
1: movies tend to be you know, much more than, than literature, but, um, you write, you write it alone. Eventually down the line, you may have an editor. I've sometimes had editors on my books and sometimes not. And what they are for me are really good readers. And I ask them, don't tell me what you think of it. Tell me what you understood or didn't understood, you know? Um, and and that's what I'm, I'm really getting for is did you get it? Um, but, a movie you make with all these other people. And so you don't have to do all everything. You have to suggest everything, or you know, talk to that person later on, but you've got all these people who do things that you can't do, or they do them better than you can do. You've got a costumer, you know, you've got a production designer, you've got a composer, you've got a cinematographer, all those people's talents you get to use when you make the movie. So when you're writing it, uh, for instance, uh, when I wrote, Joe was Don uh, Piranha when I wrote the first draft, I wrote it with every cut and every, you know, cutaway and this and that, blood frothing on the surface, you know, and this and that. Um, assuming that a director was going to be chosen and that they would throw most of it out and then do their own stuff. But for the reader, I wanted it to read like you're watching the movie. Right. Here's what you see at this moment. Um, when I know that I'm gonna get to make a movie and I'm not doing an audition for financiers, uh, I write a much simpler script because I know oh, I'm gonna get talk to the cinematographer about this. Um, so there's a great line and uh, maybe a, uh, a short story of Raymond Chandler's where he says, um, uh, he gave me a drink of warm gin and a dirty glass. Hmm. Well, you see the room that you're in if, if you've heard he's gotten that drink and you yeah, know yeah. something about the character of the guy whose office he's in. Um, and so when I'm writing a screenplay, a lot of what I write in description is like that. It sets the tone for the room, but I don't describe everything unless there's a prop that we need to know is there. I'm just gonna, you know, th- this is the kind of place where, um, you know, you, you check your pants for stains <laughs> you know, after you leave the diner. Uh, and then the, the, you know, the production di- designer takes it from there. And then you get specific with them later.
0: Is there a, a reason to tell a story in a book as opposed to in a movie when you make that choice to sit down and write something?
1: Uh, well, one of them is, um, for instance, my new novel that will come out at the beginning of next year is called Jamie McGillivray. It's based on a screenplay that I wrote probably 20 years ago for Robert Carlisle, the Scots actor. Oh yeah. I've um, worked
0: with Bobby. He's wonderful. Yeah. He's a
1: great guy. We got to scout in in, in the highlands of Scotland with Robert wow. Carlisle, you know, doors wow. open. Um, and, uh, and he kind of gave me the original germ of the idea. He called me up from Hawaii where he was shooting something and I didn't know him. He just said, well, what about a, if there was a, a Highlander who, you know, he's defeated at the Battle of Culloden. And instead of hanging him, they, they transport him to the New World as a prisoner for the term of his life. And he escapes and he gets involved with the Sioux Indians. And I said, oh. well, if he lives 100 years after he gets to America, he'll run into the Sioux. But we have some Indians <laughs> on the East Coast he could run into. And I wrote this screenplay, but we could never raise money for it. Um, you know, it, it starts at the Battle of Culloden and ends at the Battle of Quebec. you know, uh, you know I, I think the most expensive movie I ever made was eight million dollars. Um, and but when I wrote the novel, I could do all those things, plus it's an 800 page novel now. I could expand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's one of the reasons it's for scale and just practical practicality. You know, this is something I can get away with in fiction that I don't think I'll ever be able to get away with on film.
0: Well, you seem to be very well versed and interested in history. So many of your films are period pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that came out of education or just uh, reading? Uh,
1: I, I think it came out of the story part because uh, I never took history class. When I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when, I, when I, I've gotten interested in things, um, kind of similar experience, while I was in college, I read Bury My Heart at-, at um, Wounded
0: one, Knee, yeah.
1: I think it's Vine Deloria wrote it. And each chapter is a different, you know, Indian nations interaction with the, 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 the invaders, you know, right. the white people who came in. And as I read it, I said, I've seen this movie. I may have seen two versions of this movie and this is a better story. Even if I like the movie, this is a better story than the one in the movie. What actually happened is more complex and interesting. And that's that started getting me hooked on, well, what was the real story? What really happened? Um, what are the anachronisms in the movie besides just that Charles Bronson is Polish. He's he's a Cherokowski, but he's not really an Indian. Um, you know, why why couldn't we tell this story? And so a bunch of my things have been just just stumbling on some bit of history and thinking, wow, I've never seen that movie.
0: Yeah, starting with but, Eight Men Out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Eight Men Out, um, Mate One is based on a real incident, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, oh, how come I've never seen that? Our, our movie um, uh uh limbo um you know is partly i got interested in what went on in alaska Uh, our movie amigo is about the philippine-american war there have been three movies made about the philippine-american war in america and that's a war that we want how come you know what 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 makes us uncomfortable about the philippine-american war you know well it was an imperialist war and we betrayed the the promise that we made to the Filipino people. So it's not something we're that proud of. Um, the other two movies that were made about the Philippine-American War, there's not a single Filipino in them. Huh. Um, so in, in, in one of them, I think it's called The Real Glory, which is kind of, they took um, they took the, um, what's the Roger Kipling one? Um, Gunga Din. They took the gun oh, to in plot, put it in the Philippine insurrection, and the evil Datu um, is played by a guy who came from the Moscow Art Theater. Oh, great. And he does a wonderful job with the Texas dirt on everything. <laughs> right. but he's not Filipino, you know. And so there, there was something where I just said, you know what, If maybe if you actually tell the truth. Yeah. And don't do the Hollywood version. You're going to get a more interesting movie about it. And that's kind of how I got hooked on, you know, trying to to, to wed history and movies.
0: Well, truth is a big part of your movies, and there's there's a moral core to uh, most of what you've done as well. But one of the most impressive things is, like in Liana and uh, Passion Fish, writing from a female perspective, mm-hmm. very successfully. Tell me a little bit about that process.
1: Well, I think the process is um, we're dealing with like 51% of the population. You know? Right. It's, it's tough to leave them out of a story. That's um, for sure. And then, you know, I grew up, you know, I've, I grew up around at least 51% of the people I knew were women. <laughs> and I, I, I worked in hospitals where often I was, I was sometimes the only white person in the hospital on the midnight shift and almost always the only male, you know, the nurses were women, the nurses aides were women, you know, I, I was a, an orderly and I was the only guy there. And so if somebody died, they would call me or if somebody was heavy to lift, they would call me and right. it kind of spoiled me, but I was used to having women as bosses. Well, it's um, a
0: very okay. empathetic writing and directing that goes into this. And obviously, that's the job of a writer mm-hmm. is to be empathetic. But these are, are, are very quiet stories of, of human existence and, and reality. As
1: opposed to The Lady in Red, which I wrote. Right, right? yes. is a female lead, and, but not a quiet one, you know. No. But I think the interesting thing is Roger. Also
0: a period movie.
1: Yeah. Roger, who liked gangster pictures. Um, he came to me and instead of saying, let's do the John Dillinger story, he said, let's do the Lady in Red. Right. From her point of view. And Dillinger will just be some guy, she doesn't know who he is at first. And neither does the audience, you know. So Roger had an interest in that too. You know, they, you know, as a, a, you know, um, Ma Barker, he did a couple Ma Barker kind of movies. um, So, you know, for, for me, it's just like, well, this is an interesting story. Who's going to tell it? Who's going to be our way into it? And sometimes the story you want to tell, a woman is the best way into it.
0: Right. Now, speaking of telling a story, I'd love to hear about Night Skies, which Mm -hmm. eventually became E.T. in a very cuddly form. Night Skies was a horror movie. Mm -hmm. So,
1: Yeah, um, I was hired uh, after a couple things I'd done. Um, and Steven Spielberg was going to produce this movie. Uh, it had a couple, a couple names, Watch the Skies was one of them, right. uh, Night Skies was another one, and it was going to be directed by Ron Cobb, who was oh, yeah. a wonderful cartoonist, and he, he worked on, when I met him, he, he was not, uh, I think he was born in America, but lived in Australia for years and was a cartoonist there. Um, when I met him, I was in Hoboken, Steven Spielberg was in Tunisia scouting for the the um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Ron was in Spain helping uh, design the first Conan movie. So right. of course we had to meet in Paris, which was great, free <laughs> ticket to Paris. Um, and uh, Ron had some wonderful ideas and, and drawings and stuff like that. Um, and it kind of, got to this point where, uh, I think Steven was at, um, Columbia and I don't know if we had a deal at Columbia, but where people were just kind of uncomfortable with, uh, we, we, we have our own science fiction movie. Right. Um, and so I wrote something that was, I always thought of it as um, drums along the Mohawk with not Indians attacking the people in the stone house, but um, ETs, and it was based on uh, research that Steven Spielberg had done for Close Encounters. So I encountered the men in black in that, you know, research. And uh, there's one incident where this farm family had been attacked, and it was kind of, you know, the time when there were a lot of cattle mutation. Mut- mut- Uh, mutilations. Um, so I kind of wove all that together. And so it's a kind of, uh, you know, um, besieged family story. And at the end of it, there's one ET who is fascinated by their autistic child and kind of makes a bond. And he's the only ET who's not nasty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so they ditch him at the end, they leave without him. Um, and then uh, they didn't get much traction with that. And Stephen went on, you know, and made Raiders. And he had this idea of, I think he looked at that script and said, well, what a, what, a, what about that E.T. story? I was working on directing and, and uh, 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 Liana, and I, he went to Melissa Matheson. And, and I have to say, because I've been in a lot of these Writers Guild things where there's multiple writers on it and they send you this is our shooting script right and you know as a writer for hire you know this most scripts you get are bad or have big problems you know and so I read the script and I said this is terrific yeah um but the only you know thing that I did was probably the the first sentence (laughs) and then it goes off on its own tangent so I just said yeah yeah nice job good luck with it I thought, oh, Stephen's going to make a nice little Disney movie um, and <laughs> it turned into E.T. Um, yeah. So it was a nice situation of feeling like, OK, you know, there was a little spark. And if it led to a great movie, terrific. Um, but it was fun to work on and, and fun to work with. You know, I had a couple story conferences with uh, Stephen Spielberg. Kathy Kennedy was around um, as a, I think, really an assistant at that point. She wasn't music right. yet. And, and with Ron Cobb.
0: Yeah, Ron was such a great underground cartoonist before he became a yeah. designer on Alien and other yeah. things like that. Um, my, my most but,
1: interesting uh, WGA uh, credits thing was I had uh, worked on The Mummy when Joe Dante was going to direct it and did right. a couple scripts for it. And then Joe stepped out of it. And then it got made, I thought, very well. And they sent me the... the um, the screenplay for that. And I immediately saw, okay, you know, yeah, there's a guy with bandages wrapped in sand and there's sand, you know, but, but this isn't really my work. So I'm not going to ask for credit, um, you know, and, and, and stuff that we both took from the original movie. Um, but the list, because they tell you all the other authors who've worked on all the other screenwriters, there were 13 writers on
0: it. Including George Romero twice. And including me. I rewrote yeah, I rewrote George's script and I was going to direct it. And then Clive Barker was going to direct it. And yeah. I, I co wrote with Clive a version of the mummy, which was not like anything you'd ever see from Universal yeah. Studios. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I love to think that George Romero just got a call and said, How would you like to do a rewrite of the mummy? He's yeah, making, I can just hand them the same script. They don't know I've done one already.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, what is there? You, you've done so many different genres. Your work still has your personality deeply embedded in it. What have you not done yet? What is that project that you wish you could do?
1: You know, there, there there are movies that I've, that I've written, genre movies that I've written that I wish somebody would make, um, whether it's me or somebody else. Uh, I worked for James Cameron's company, and I wrote a movie that he was going to produce, and they were going to get a director for it, called, uh, a movie called Brother Termite, um, which is based on a wonderful science fiction book. And uh, basically, the plot is that Bulb-headed aliens have been in the White House since the 50s, running things. <laughs> and when the, the movie happens, they've come out of the closet and the hardliners among them just want to kill all the humans. And the, the, the ones who've spent more time with people and kind of been corrupted by us, so they're not a group mind kind of thing, they're more individual. Uh, they want to give us a golden parachute, and just make the race sterile so that you know we, we go into the sunset. Not having children, uh, and it's wonderful. I really like that screenplay. I wish somebody would make that. Um, I wrote for Joe. I wrote um, them again, which is a, you know, an updating of them. The jumping the dance.
0: Yeah. I you <laughs> know
1: I wish we could liberate the the rights to that and get that made. Um, right when when he was in his last days, I was working with Doug Trumbull on a movie called Enigma, uh, which is a which is kind of Philosophically, an extension of silent running um, that you know takes people to a, another planet and they have to figure out how it works there and are we going to fuck it up again?
0: You
1: know, <laughs> you know yeah, really, probably, are we gonna, yeah. Are we, ha, are we the disease? Yeah, uh-huh. um, and uh, and that would be a great movie. I really like the script of that. So, what I, about I think, as
0: a director? What about as a director? Is there something that you one on that? I was
1: going to co-direct with Doug? Oh wow. um, You know, if it got made, um, I have a Western right now called uh, I Pass This Way that we're trying to, you know, kind of small Western that I'd like to make. I have uh, a movie um, that would be very low budget uh, set in a Chicago bar, um, just a neighborhood bar on the night of the 1968 democratic convention oh wow so it starts out with you know these kind of guys and they're watching the tv and oh it's getting kind of heavy out there and then people start coming in and say what is, what's that smell and it's tear gas and then eventually cops are chasing young people into the bar and they kind of have to make a stand so it's like a, a one set
0: movie i'd fantastic. love to take that fantastic
1: uh i have a script that's set at the carlisle indian school in 1890 I've got a, you know, I've written over a hundred scripts, so I've got yeah. a lot of these things. Yeah, out. Uh, yeah. I, I well, the diversity,
0: more. your creative diversity is really wonderful. And to see you work with ease in so many different genres and with so many different kinds of characters, whether it's Brother from Another Planet or it's Liana or it's mm-hmm. Passion Fish or it's Eight Men Out. And it, it's really an amazing resume.
1: Well, it's something that I like about the movies and always did, which is uh, every movie you enter is a different world and it may have a lot to do with this world, or it may have a lot to do with post-war Italy, you know, really crunchy post-war Italy, or it may be a fantastic world and a good movie tells you the rules pretty quickly, you know, okay. Do the rules of physics apply? No, this is, this is, you know, why the coyote and and the road, you know, (laughs) um, do, do does kind of common sense apply? Well, maybe not. You know, uh, the opening of all the Bond movies, the recent ones, wonderful chase scenes. But you know, one of those leaps, the guy would be in the hospital. You know, but, but they're exciting and they move fast, so you don't think about yeah. it too much. You know, those are the rules of those movies. Um, and you know, so they take you into these different wor- worlds. Some of them are historically accurate. Some of them are total fam- fantasy um you know and and if it's a good movie you have a full experience in that world i remember seeing the second mad max movie and maggie and i got into the parking lot of the 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 shopping mall that the theater was in and it was really hard not to want to slam our car into another (laughs) and we were kind of oh god we got to settle down here you know we've been in that world
0: you're amped up by the road warrior Yeah. yeah Yeah, that's great. Well, John, we've barely scratched the surface. I hope that we can do this again. It was really great to meet you and have a conversation. And I'm a huge admirer and we've got to do it again. Thanks, Mick. Good to talk to you all. Great. Thank you, John.
1: Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast
0: app.